0: Well, speaking of uh, that food, I have to tell you, food was one of the experiences that wasn't top of my list when we were in Los Angeles. The Americans seem to focus more on quantity than on quality. I tell you what, I, for no other reason, I would move back to South Africa for those samosas. That's amazing. So thank you all. Your hospitality has been incredible. Uh, it has been wonderful to feel the warmth of the love that we share uh, for one another because of Christ and our common bond to Him as members of His body. So thank you all uh, for that. Um, I have introduced you to the concept this weekend of a Lerman, a sermon and a lecture mashed together like... Breakfast and brunch. i sorry, breakfast and lunch make brunch. You have a lecture and a sermon, giving you a lerman, and you have been faithful to uh, be with me throughout those lermans, and this morning through a sermon. Uh, this afternoon, though, I just want to. Do something like serve you a dessert course. So we've had a wonderful meal out of God's Word, and and I in no way want to slack off of that, but I do want to change the type of message that I bring to you. Whereas I focus very much on exhorting you, uh, I want to end by aiming to encourage you and equip you. Uh, So... As you have, I trust your stomach's full uh, and your thirst being quenched, settle in and uh, join me now for a time of encouragement from God's Word. I've entitled this session, Enduring Evil Days, Persistent Prayer for Persistent Faith. Let's pray though before we get to God's Word. Father in heaven, I pray that you would work in us that which is pleasing to you, most especially that essential means by which we relate to you faith. Give us faith that is genuine and true and that endures all the evil that we experience in this world and this life. We must, Lord, we know, endure to the end in order to be saved, and so. Of first necessity, give us the kind of faith that will endure testing, that will be refined by the fires and come out as refined gold that won't be burnt up like useless dross. And so, encourage us now and equip us now through your word to have our faith strengthened for endurance. In the evil days now and ahead of us, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Um, You can already tell that I'm going to be speaking to you about endurance and enduring evil days, but uh, endurance is not a thing that comes naturally to us, is it? Not many of us are marked by a natural tendency towards endurance, well, many of us have a natural tenacity to stick it out when the going gets tough. There is a remarkable story that I came across of one man who just had endurance that is mind-blowing. It's a Japanese soldier in the Second World War. His name is Hiroonoda. And uh, the Japanese, by their cultural influences, I think are somewhat renowned for their fanatical adherence to their causes, but he was something of a head-and-shoulders overachiever when it came to that fanaticism. See, Hiro was probably the most notable out of a number of soldiers in the Japanese army that continued to fight even after the peace treaty had been signed in 1945. Mr. Onoda, uh, Lieutenant Onoda, was fighting in the Philippines when 1945 rolled around and Japan, Japan surrendered, to the United States and its allies. However, he refused to believe that uh, the end of the war was upon them, believing that Japan would never surrender, which is what he'd always been told his entire life. And so he stayed hunkered down in the hills above some of the villages in the Philippine Islands. He continued to fight the war, though his country had signed a declaration of peace and unconditional surrender. He refused to believe that that was true, and so every time he had the opportunity, he took a pot shot at a village or two and wiped a couple of them out. As word of this started to spread, this actually became a source of tremendous national embarrassment to the Japanese Empire uh, as they were trying to uh, rebuild their relationship with the Western powers, in particular with uh, the United States which became an occupying force in Japan. And so this really was creating all sorts of diplomatic trouble for them, that they had a couple of soldiers that were still killing people in the name of the war. And so they tried over the years to do a number of things to get uh, Lieutenant Noda to surrender. They sent radio broadcasts, they delivered letters, but every time he received one of those announcements, he dismissed it as nothing more than Western propaganda. You know, it's spycraft. They're trying to trick him. So he refused to believe it. You might think that this went on for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, but it was only in 1974. Do the math, that's 29 years. Only in 1974 would he eventually surrender when the Japanese emperor found his old commanding officer and sent him back. So that his CEO could go face to face with the man and tell him, you need to stand down and surrender. 29 years of fighting a war that no one else was fighting. That's endurance. It, it may not be many other things. I mean, it's not wisdom. It's not a whole bunch of other things. But it is tenacity. It is Endurance. And it helps us to think on the topic of enduring when we face great odds. When the world is set against us. Because that's exactly what we're called to do as believers. We are, as Peter tells us, aliens and sojourners in this world. This world and the ideology that it holds to of rebellion against our God and our Father. This world is no longer our home. We are living in anticipation of our home in a better place. We long for a city that we have yet to be given residence in. And while we wait, we must endure. Because Jesus told us that it is through our endurance that we will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And I tell you what, friends, if there is a verse... In scripture that terrifies me, it is that. Because humanly speaking, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I get to know the frailty and the sinfulness of my own heart. If God had to but for a moment withdraw his sovereign grace so that my endurance depended on my own fidelity, I would fail within a split second. So I know my own heart well enough to know endurance is not going to be easy. But I also know the circumstances that we face. And as I titled it, we are enduring evil days, are we not? Romans 1 tells us very clearly that the world is set in rebellion against God, will continue in this downward spiral of depravity where it rebels against God and in judgment God Removes still more of his restraining influence to give us over to ourselves, leading us to further spiral downwards in horrifying depravity. And so the world is becoming increasingly evil. In our eschatology, our doctrine of the end times tells us that that's exactly the trajectory we'll be on until Christ returns. And so while the days are evil, they're getting still yet more evil as we continue on. So it's not even like you're running the Comrades Marathon and you've got to the point that you're like, great, the rest of the journey is downhill. I just get to slug it on easily. No. It's like we're running the Comrades up Kilimanjaro. The further we go, the harder it gets. And yet... Christ's call to endurance remains firm. We must endure in order to be saved. Theologically, we know that there is the perseverance of the saints. Those who truly belong to Christ will endure. They will persevere to the end and thus demonstrate that their faith is genuine and true but we also know that God works through means, channels through which He pours His grace to accomplish these sovereign purposes. So I want to talk to you today about how it is that we will endure in our faith the means of grace by which the Lord strengthens our faith for perseverance. With that, I would ask you to turn to Luke 2. Chapter eighteen. Luke chapter eighteen. And we're going to be reading the first eight verses in what many of our Bibles have unhelpfully titled The Parable of the Persistent Widow. As you'll come to see, I think. That is a very unhelpful name because it places the emphasis on the very opposite place we should be placing it. But read along with me as we turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 down to 8. It says, Now he, and that of course is Jesus, Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart saying in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming at him, saying, Give me justice from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man... Yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice, lest by her continual, continually coming she wears me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Now will God not bring about justice for his elect when they cried to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. The subtitle to uh, this session, Enduring Evil Days, is Persistent, uh, Persistent Prayer for Persistent Faith. This is clearly a parable calling for us to be persistent in prayer. But what you'll see by the end of the session is that persistent prayer is the key to persistent faith. Enduring in prayer is the way that we will endure in our faith. It is critically important for us to know as we interpret this parable that it comes to us in a particular context. Verse 1 of chapter 18 begins, as my translation has a now, or perhaps yours says and. But there is a conjunction showing us that Luke is recounting something that happens in sequence to something else. If you turn back to chapter 17 and verse 20, we'll see very briefly what that context is and how it informs our view of this parable. Verse 20 of chapter 17 says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming... Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So to begin with, the Pharisees, the enemies of Christ, ask him an eschatological question. When is the kingdom of God coming? Now, Jesus gives them something of a dismissal in his answer. He brushes them off, but turns in verse 22 to give a more detailed instruction to his disciples, those who were his friends, not his enemies, those who were open to his instruction, not those who had hardened their hearts. And he says, or the text says, and he said to the disciples, the days will come. When you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say, look there, look here, do not go away and do not run off to them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation." So then go on to give them analogies of Noah and Lot and instruct them about the details of this period of time called the lost days. For the Jews and for us as those who have our eschatology lined up correctly, we should Understand that the lost days are a period of time between when Jesus came as a suffering servant and when he will return as the conquering king. The period of time between his two comings are the lost days. And when he came first, his arrival was contrary to everything the Jewish people were expecting. They were not expecting, as verse 25 says, that he would suffer many things And be rejected by his people. Rather they were expecting a conquering king who would vanquish their enemies. And Jesus doesn't say that that expectation was wrong. Merely that it would be delayed. It would be fulfilled when he returned again. And tells them that when he does it would be just like lightning that flashes and illumines the entire sky. The son of man will come and what Jesus says in verse 24 is his day the day when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. But what is important for us to note is this period between those two great days, the day when Jesus came first and when he comes again second to establish his kingdom. How will his disciples endure those days? Because as he goes to pains to describe in chapter 17 as we know well from The rest of the New Testament, those days will be evil days. As we've already said, those days will grow more and more evil by the day. So how is it that those who will come to follow Jesus, all the more so after he leaves them to ascend to heaven, how will they endure until he returns? For it is by their endurance that they will be saved. It's only those who endure to the end who will truly be shown to belong to him. That is why we have the parable on prayer that we do in Luke 18, 1-8. Just by way of outline so you can follow along, uh, this text here in the first eight verses of Luke 18 gives us three aspects of prayer that will equip us to be persistent in prayer so that we will be persistent in faith. There is the need of prayer, firstly, then the motivation of prayer, secondly, and the effects of prayer, thirdly. So the need for prayer, the motivation of prayer, and the effects of prayer, those will equip us to be persistent in prayer so that we will be persistent in our faith. And that all become clear to you as we work our way through this text. Luke 18.1 says now and we've already seen how that connects us to the context now jesus was telling them a parable many of us think that a parable is there to make things clear that jesus being a masterful arta used uh language that is descriptive and graphic and Something of the storytelling theme that many artists of our day say people respond to so well. We think that Jesus used stories to grip the hearts and the minds of his people. Whereas scripture tells us that the opposite is true. He taught in parables not to make things clear but to make things hidden. To obscure them from those who harden their hearts against him. And so it is that as parables don't clarify truth but they obscure truth and are revealed only to the understanding of those who truly belong to the Lord that often we have some confusion about how to interpret parables. Parables can be some of the most challenging interpretive texts and often we misunderstand them many times by misunderstanding how they work thinking that we have to make an an, analogy. we have to make an analogy and connect every single point of the parable. Parables rather give us one great point, they illustrate one great truth. What's great about this parable in Luke 18 is we don't need to take a guess at what that is. We don't need to struggle in our interpretation because Luke gives us the point of the parable. He says explicitly. Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. That is the purpose of the parable. That's what it means. That's how Jesus aims for us to apply it. It describes, as I said, the need of prayer. The need of prayer. Now listen. The purpose of the prayer is that we will pray at all times. And that in our praying we would not lose heart. There's already a profound lesson that we need to note. Those that pray at all times, those that persist in prayer are going to be those that do not lose heart. That do not become discouraged. That do not become weakened in their faith. So note how this works. The need of prayer is this. We must pray because those who persist in prayer are those who persist in faith. And the inverse is true too. Those who do not persist in in faith are those who have not been persisting in prayer. Prayer is a vital means of grace to strengthen and to sustain our faith. And before we even receive anything by means of prayer... Before we are able to ask, give us this day our daily bread and receive the Lord's provision for such things. Before prayer is about getting things from God, it is about simply communing with God. And there is a means of grace that even in the very act of praying, the Lord strengthens our hearts through that act of praying. He has designed prayer to be the life-giving oxygen to our faith that will give it life and vitality and and allow us to endure in our faith. You see, God speaks to us through His Word and we speak to Him through prayer, but can you imagine what kind of a relationship a husband and a wife would have if the husband spoke to the wife, but she never spoke to him? Some of you ladies I know believe that you're in a marriage where you speak to your husband. He never speaks to you. But those kinds of relationships will never last. Because in order to have an enduring relationship, you need to have one in which both parties are communicating. God speaks to us through His Word and we speak to Him through prayer. And by that... There is something wonderful in how he has designed prayer. Because prayer is us, as I said, communicating with him. Prayer, as we go through the act of prayer, forces us to focus our minds and our hearts on who he is. And how he works. The psalmist in Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and you do good. There is a wealth of theology packed in those simple words. But every time you pray, before you even get anything from God through that prayer, you are implicitly reminded that you are talking to a good God who does good things. And that in and of itself, friends, has been designed by God to strengthen your faith. Those who are constant in prayer will not see their faith weakened in the midst of evil days. Persistent prayer will see you persist in faith. This is the very need of prayer that we face. Some of you may ask, why is it that we need to pray at all times? Why can we not just pray sometime and have the Lord strengthen us through that? After all, don't we take meals only three times a day? And strengthen our bodies through that way. Why can we not pray in the same way? Pray occasionally. And have one prayer give us stamina for many days. Or many hours. The answer is simple. We pray at all times because we're in need at all times. Prayer is not like taking a meal. Prayer is like breathing. As I said to you, it is the oxygen of our faith. We don't breathe now and hope that it lasts us for the next couple hours. We are constantly breathing because we have constant need for the life-giving oxygen to sustain our bodies. And so we are constantly in need and therefore constant in prayer so that it might give life-strengthening grace, life-giving grace to our faith. Jesus illustrates the need for this in the parable, and so we move from the need of prayer to the motivation of prayer. Jesus' purpose is clear. He wants us to pray at all times, to be persistent in prayer in order to be persistent in our faith, but the motivation comes in verses 2 to 6 by way of a parable. This is what the parable says. Jesus says, In a certain city, The fact that he calls it a certain city should tell you that this is not an important detail in the parable. It's not the main point. So anyway, a nondescript city. There was a judge who did not fear God nor respect man. Now, there were a number of judges in that day. You had both Roman judges and Jewish judges, and you had those who were religious judges and those who were civil judges, and... From the context, it seems that it's most appropriate for us to view this as a civil judge. Something like a magistrate, as we would have him in our day. A local law official who was there to judge the disputes between fellow residents. His purpose, by virtue of his title, was to administer justice. To defend those who needed to be defended and to punish those who needed to be punished. He is, as we would term it today, a civil servant. It's therefore rather curious that he has the following character traits as Jesus describes him. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man. He is not religious nor is he he a humanitarian. He doesn't care about God, and he doesn't care about his fellow people. So the more curious when we consider that the two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this man is disqualified by virtue of his character to be a judge because he breaks God's great laws neither loving God nor loving his neighbor, and he breaks even the civil requirements that the culture plays upon him. He's not religious, he's not a humanitarian, he doesn't care about anyone other than himself. And so we have a profoundly selfish judge, which would, you would think make him a poor fit for the position. We'll see that that's exactly the case because Jesus says in verse 3 Now there was a widow in that city, and we should know that in Jesus' day there was no one more vulnerable than a widow. It was, more than our day, a male dominated society. Women were very much dependent on men to represent them, even in civil causes. They needed a husband or a father or sometimes even a son. To act as the head of the home and to represent them and to defend them. A woman without a husband, without a son, without a father, a widow as the case may be here, was defenseless. She had no one to stand up for her, no one to defend her, no one to provide for her. So she was destitute and defenseless. The only one left in all of society who is there to take care of her, who is there to stand up for her when no one else would, is the magistrate. The very judge who is appointed to ensure that the defenseless are defended. And so this widow comes to the judge not knowing that while he holds the position of the defender, he holds the character of a selfish, depraved man. She comes to Him and keeps coming to Him. Your translation should indicate the fact that she kept coming to Him as a continual process. And that's exactly the way that the original Greek is represented. It was a continual, ceaseless coming. Obviously, she did not get what she wanted, as Jesus tells us. Because she had to keep on coming again and again and again. Why is it that she persisted? Because she had no other option than to persist. She had no other hope and nowhere else to turn. And so without a solution to her problem, without justice for her cause, she just had to keep on coming time and time and time again. Her cry is, give me justice from my opponent or give me justice from my adversary but notice that she does ask for justice she's not there asking for a selfish vendetta to be settled she's not there asking for justice to be perverted she's not trying to game the system or manipulate the judge into some sort of corrupt venture rather she's there asking for what she should rightfully receive justice She has a legal complaint against someone who is breaking the law, and the judge ought to be the one to help her by enforcing that law. But, as verse 4 tells us, for a while he was unwilling. We can tell that not only was this man selfish, but he was also foolish. Because, as most men are wise enough to know, you should not... with a persistent older woman. I have a grandmother who would illustrate that for you very aptly. She was determined and would not be swayed in her determination. And so this selfish judge met his match in the form of a determined widow. And so afterward as verse 4 says, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, Now, how terrible is this? Not only was he morally bankrupt, but he was acutely aware of the fact that he was morally bankrupt. If there is one thing that could make his selfishness worse, it's the fact that he was aware of his selfishness and didn't care to remedy it. He was perfectly content being selfish, having no love for God and no love for his fellow man. But the fact that he repeats this character description of himself Underscores the fact that when he acts, it's not going to be an act of submission to God or an act of love for this poor woman. He hasn't suddenly come under the conviction of the Lord and now responded in selfless service. This is going to be an act of self interest. He is going to respond out of selfishness because this wise and persistent old widow has tipped the scales it's now really in his best interests to act because she is bothering him. Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow is bothering me, she's become a pain. I will give her justice, lest by continually coming she wears me out. Yesterday I said that 98 out of 100 times our English translations will help us get to the correct interpretation. And that's true over here as well. But every now and then there is a hidden gem in the original language that just escapes the translator's notice. When our text says, lest by her continual coming she wears me out, that term for wear out is a Greek term that describes being given a black eye. So he's saying, somewhat more literally, lest by continually coming she give me a black eye. So this really was a feisty old woman. But of course, he's not worried about his physical danger. This was an idiom at the time and had more to do with shame. Having a black eye was a representation of being shamed or dishonored. So he wasn't so much worried about the physical violence of this old woman, but by the fact that her being seen on his doorstep and turned away unsuccessful every day was starting to cause rumors to go around town. He was starting to look bad. His name and his reputation were starting to be dragged through the mud because people were noticing that he had turned away a helpless widow. And so in the epitome of his selfishness, he acted not for her sake, but to save his own name and reputation. That's the parable. That is the motivation to prayer. It's easy to understand why most of our English Bibles have titled it the parable of the persistent widow, because indeed she was persistent. And by her persistence, she gained what she needed. And many a preacher has fallen into the trap of taking this parable and preaching on our need to persist in prayer until the Lord gives us what we need. We will wear Him out. We will wear Him down. Persist in prayer until the Lord gives you what you need. friends. The purpose of this parable, the motivation to be found in this parable is not one of comparison, but one of contrast. Jesus is not telling us to look at the widow and be like the widow. Persist in prayer so that eventually, when God who is disinterested in you, is finally bothered enough to act and help you. Not because he loves you, but out of pure self-interest because you are annoying him. No, friends, it's not one of comparisons, one of contrast. And the interpretive key for that comes in verse 6 when the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. You see, Jesus is focusing our minds not on the widow but on the judge because he is the main character of the story, not her. And the story is one of contrast between him and God. And one of comparison between the widow and us. Jesus is saying he is selfish and he is disinterested. And you have to bother the judge to get what you need. But God is unlike the judge because he loves you. And he waits to hear from you. And his entire inclination is to help you. Because he is so great in his love for you. That you don't need to bother him. Pray to him because he loves you. Pray to him because he will help you, because his character is unstained by selfishness like the judge. He does love mankind. And so in this contrast, we find the motivation of prayer. How does this encourage us to persist in prayer? Friends, how disheartening it must be to ask time and time again of someone that you need assistance. To ask them for help and to be turned away, that doesn't encourage us to go back to them again, does it? And even if we manage to wear them out, we're in no way enthusiastic to go back to them again. I wish that we weren't well versed in this. Anyone who's needed to go to home affairs or get a driver's license renewed or need any kind of government government assistance knows what it is to need help and to go time and time and time again and ask for help from those who are meant to give us the very help we need and to be turned away. I don't know about you, but I'm in no rush to go to home affairs again. But God is not like that and the encouragement to pray to Him continually is that we receive warmth and welcome when we do and the help that we so desperately need from Him. We will never leave the throne room of God without everything we need given freely and lovingly by our God. Where we misunderstand that principle though is that we think The purpose of prayer is to get stuff from God. And while He does often provide for us in response to our prayer, as we pray, for instance, give us this day our daily bread, He does provide for our physical nourishment and needs. But before prayer is about asking for things from God, it is about communing with God, it is about relationship with God. And so know this, as the need of prayer is to sustain our faith, persistent prayer helps us to be persistent in our faith. We will never pray and not have our faith revived. We will never draw in a a breath full of air into our lungs and find that it doesn't saturate our bodies with that life-giving substance. In the same way, Jesus is promising us We will never turn to God and focus our minds and hearts on His character and His ways, on the fact that He's good and does good and leave that exercise of prayer without having our faith in some way strengthened, even if that strengthening is imperceptible to our own notice. He will sustain our faith. And of course He will indeed give us what we need in addition to that. But the primary purpose is giving us persistent faith by means of persistent prayer. Well, we've seen the need of prayer, and we've seen the motivation of prayer, but look at the effects of prayer now in the last two verses. The effects of prayer. Verse 7 says, Now, Jesus now switching to make the theological interpretation of what he's given, Will God not bring about justice for His elect? who cried to him, day and night, and will He delay long over them? There are two questions that Jesus asks over there. The response is clearly implied. It's easy for us to see in our English text, but it's absolutely clear for us in the Greek texts. The grammar there tells us exactly the kind of response that Jesus is anticipating. But even for us reading our English Bibles, we can read the question, Will not God bring about justice for His elect? Of course He will. With absolute certainty He will. But friends, remember I told you, we need to remember the context for this. This is given to us to help us to endure those days between when Jesus first came And when he will come again soon. And implicit in his question is the fact that. Day and night his elect will be crying out to him. His chosen ones. His loved ones. Those who have genuine faith. Even in their persistent prayer. Will need to cry out day and night for justice. Because they will be suffering injustice. They will be subject to the evil days that they need to endure. Even to the point that they have these desperate cries that they cry out to the Heavenly Father, How long, O Lord, will you not help? We have a book of Psalms filled with that question. Prophets who had that very same cry, How long, O Lord? So will God bring justice for His elect? yes. Even as they suffer injustice for a season. Which is why Jesus asks a second question. Will he delay long over them? The implied answer is no. But that's not to say that he will not delay. From God's heavenly sovereign perspective. His delay will not be long in coming. His response of justice will come swiftly and in the blink of an eye and with absolute determination to squash every injustice and defend His people and establish His law in the kingdom of His Son. But that will come at the appointed time. When Jesus returns and establishes His kingdom and brings with Him His justice, first in the form of his millennial kingdom and then in the eternal state. But as we wait for that, there will be a delay. There will be a period of time that we have to endure evil days. Jesus assures us, though, in verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. From his sovereign perspective, when the moment that has been appointed for Jesus to return, it will happen in the blink of an eye. And that justice will be swift and complete. But until then, we need to endure. And so there are two effects to prayer. The one is certainly that God will respond to our requests and give us what we need. And for those of us who cry about injustice, One of the effects of prayer is that God will bring justice quickly. Be assured of this. Every need that you bring to your Heavenly Father will be answered. Even if not in the time that you look for the answer. So God will respond and that is one of the effects of prayer. But one of the other effects is that our faith, the faith of God's elect will be sustained. But Jesus answers with a challenging question. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, thus bringing clarity to the fact that the justice he's describing is the justice brought about by his return, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that faith on the earth? In other words, how many will heed the call of this parable to persist in prayer in order to persist in their faith. Turn with me briefly to Matthew chapter twenty-five. Sorry, Matthew chapter twenty-four. <clears throat> Verse 4 says, Jesus said to them, See to it that no one deceives you. For those of you who are concerned about the context, this is in the Great Tribulation. When the Jewish nation is called through their sufferings to repent and return to Christ, the church having been raptured and the Jewish people facing devastating persecution in order to break them of their rebellion, Jesus says, See to that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, and that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Both now and in the age to come, there will be those who claim the name of Christ. Those who say that they have faith in our Messiah but when persecution and tribulation come, much like the seed that gets sown on the soil that is rocky, and therefore they have no root, when the sun comes up, it scorches. In the same way, there will be a faith that is professed by many. And when tribulation comes, when they are called to endure evil days, they fall away. There will be those who hear this parable And do not persist in prayer in order to persist in their faith. So Jesus' question, not having an answer attached to it, is designed to challenge each and every one of us. Because how do you know that you are among the good seed fallen on good soil? How do you know that you are among God's elect? You prove it by persevering in your faith. But will you listen to what Jesus is telling you? You will not persist in your faith if you do not persist in your prayer. There is no other way to endure evil days. So will you hear and obey? Will you understand the need of prayer to be persistent in prayer in order to be persistent in your faith? And will you hear the encouragement of Jesus that God is inclined to love you and to respond to you. And therefore you don't need to bother him into helping you. So that one of the effects of your prayer will be that you endure evil days until he returns or calls you home. That's the challenge for each and every one of us. But the encouragement to you friends... It's as simple as what it is profound. You're not being called to eloquent prose. Don't forget that Jesus told the Pharisees that their public prayers with eloquent words meant nothing to God because they were hypocritical. I'm encouraging you not to pray with silver tongues as if it's by the words that you use that you will impress God. I'm not laying upon you that kind of burden. I'm not even telling you that you need to pray for an hour every morning and an hour during your lunchtime and an hour every evening. That you need to be like James, the apostle, who was reported to have leather-like knees, knees like a camel, because he was so frequently in prayer. No, friends, I'm calling on you to simply exercise the childlike faith of constantly talking to your Heavenly Father, of continually being in prayer with your loving God. Remembering that just like Nehemiah, we can pray in the secret of our heart throughout our day. Every day and every moment and every challenge we face, every temptation we must escape. Every evil we must endure in these evil days must be met with a continual inhaling of prayer by which God gives oxygen to our faith. Be like a child. Talk to your father. Be like a body that pray that breathes in in order to give air to its lungs. Be like God's elect. And persist in prayer in order to persist in your faith. That's the simple and yet profound challenge of enduring evil days. So. Does anyone have any questions, any comments, anything that I can serve you in and bring you clarity on the subject of prayer or what I put before you today? There's no need, so if you don't feel it, I don't think it's a particularly complicated lesson. If there is, I would love to serve you in that way. Otherwise, we'll go to prayer. But since this is not a sermon, you do have that opportunity. Well, I hope that the silence is owing to the simplicity, not to a lack of clarity. Persist in prayer in order to persist in your faith. And so let's do that very thing now. Heavenly Father, we do lack the strength and the tenacity that is required to endure evil days. If only it were a matter of the external circumstances we face, where we face trial and tribulation amongst the people that hate you and therefore hate us along with you. That would be enough, Lord, to discourage us and enough for us to lose heart and fall away. And yet the greatest enemy we face is not from without, but from within. The sin that still remains within our hearts and dogs us every day the flesh that weakens us and hinders us as we still desire what we know is against the things of God. Forgive us, therefore, Lord, for our sin, for how we are weak in our faith and prone to wonder, Lord. But give us this grace that we will be constant in prayer, that by persisting in prayer to you, our loving Heavenly Father, you would give us persistent faith. Faith to endure the challenges from without and the challenges from within. Focus our minds and our hearts constantly on your character and on your ways. That you are good and that you do good. And just like children speaking to a father or just like the lungs in our bodies breathe in that life-giving oxygen, let us pray to you throughout our days sometimes audibly and sometimes in the secret of our heart, simply so that we might endure and thereby find that day when justice will come and we will see you face to face. And my sin, O oh, the bliss that glorious thought, will be gone forever as we see you face to face. Until then, help us to endure and Maranatha... Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, for the days are evil and we cry out about the injustice. Help us to endure until you do. In your name we pray.